If someone were to ask you, what was the thing that Jesus talked about the most? How would you answer that? Somebody asked me that a, a number of years back, and um, I had to think about it a little bit. Is some, with the way that we often talk in church, uh, we think, okay, what would Jesus say the most? Is it about, here's how to get to heaven? Maybe. Is it believe in me? Maybe. Well, as it turns out, the thing that Jesus said more than anything else, the teaching he gave more than any other is this. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. In Greek, the basileia ton theo, the kingdom of God, or basileia ton oranos, the kingdom of heaven. It seems that Jesus was very concerned with people knowing that the, the rule and reign of God is closer than you think. That, it, that it's coming, that one day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, that one day all things will be set right, and that same power, that same reality is creeping in to the world right now, especially through Jesus. And as we get to know who Jesus really was, that kind of makes sense, because Jesus was God incarnate. You know, the kingdom of God is right here. Why? Because it's right here in Jesus. The rule and reign of God is right there in Jesus. Now, to help us understand what it means to live in the kingdom of God, Jesus told stories, parables. Now, and parables are kind of funny because, of course, they are, they're, they're made up. They are fiction. But they're a special kind of fiction. They're a fiction. Where there are some stories that are so powerful that they're actually more real than nonfiction. Because stories like the parables help us to see the world around us in ways that we otherwise could not see. So over the next six weeks, with a little break for our 20th uh, anniversary celebration, we're going to be looking at these, some of the parables of the kingdom of God that Jesus told from at least the ones that we find in the book of, in the book of Luke. Uh, one of my seminary professors, um, Klein Snodgrass, who's my New Testament professor, liked to say this about the parables. They're imaginary gardens that contain real toads. Which I, I, just, I just thought that was really cool. Also, you'd say it in a southern drawl, too, so it just sounded cool. Imaginary garden with real toads. So we're going to take a look at some of these imaginary gardens that contain real toads. You with me? Some kingdom parables today. Okay, we are going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 12. So get your Bibles out, get your digital Bibles out, and we're going to pick things up in verse 13. So as the story goes, Jesus was now teaching a large number of people, many thousands of people. And as he's teaching this group, and he's talking about all sorts of different things, the yeast of the Pharisees, and don't fear people who can, who can, who can kill the body, but don't kill the, cannot kill the soul, and how valuable people are. All this kind of miscellaneous talk on a number of different things. A kind of strange thing happens. Because someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. 
Okay? So Jesus replied to him. You can keep the verse up on the screen. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me an arbiter or a judge between you? And then he said to all of them, Watch out. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down, I'll tear down my old barns and I'll build bigger barns and then I will store all my surplus grain and I will say to myself, self, you have lots of grain, abundant grain, stored up, laid up for plenty of years. So take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. For whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. What a story. So let's start walking through it together. Let's dive into the story, swim around in it, get to know it a little bit better. So Jesus is in front of thousands of people, thousands of people, teaching in all sorts of different things, and some guy chirps up about dividing the inheritance. What is going on with that? And Jesus does, one of the things that you probably find annoying about Jesus, it's okay to find Jesus a little bit annoying sometimes because he thinks differently than we do. Jesus doesn't answer his question. And Jesus doesn't do what, he asks, what the gentleman asks him to do. Instead, he gets to the heart underneath the question. See, in the genius of Jesus, he knows not only our questions but our motivations Behind our questions. He gets to the deeper story. And see, this is why these stories, these parables matter. Because, see, there's nothing more tragic that can happen to you or to me than for us to give our lives to the wrong story. The truth is, everyone lives for a story. All of us have got definitions of success. All of us have definitions of goal, definitions of purpose, definitions of what am I here for? And there's nothing more tragic than living for the wrong story. So Jesus helps him to reframe it. Now, as it turns out, there was a a theological debate that was going on in Israel about inheritance law. Okay, so in the Old Testament, in the, the in the stories in the in the Torah, there are there are different examples of how um, like a family inheritance will get distributed. And well, let's just pause here for a second. Who here is firstborn in your family? 
Hands high. Yeah. Okay. So there are some stories in the Old Testament, you've probably heard them, where the firstborn gets what's called a double portion. In other words, if it's just you and your younger brother and you know, dad passes away, mom and dad pass away, you get two-thirds of the inheritance. Ha-ha! So, of course, there are some rabbis, probably firstborn rabbis, but some rabbis that would say, you know, that's, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. That if you're the firstborn, well, unfortunately, ladies, at that point, it was the firstborn son, but firstborn son, you get a double portion. Now, in some cases, the firstborn also has to take on additional responsibility for caring for the family. So, I don't know, I'm a firstborn, so that sounds about right. Of course, there are other stories that advocate for equal distribution, where all children, all children get the same amount. Now, of course, there can be exceptions, and the father can kind of rewrite the rules and designate other people as firstborn, and so it's still that. And, and by the way, quick pause, one of the kindest things you can do for your family, folks, is write a will. If you haven't written a will, please do. It, it, it will save a lot of heartbreak later on so your kids don't need to go to Jesus in the middle of a crowd to, to complain about the, the inheritance that they, they feel like they didn't get. So anyway, so there's this theological debate going on. And so this, this, this person who apparently is quite upset with, with, I'm assuming he was a secondborn or maybe a thirdborn or a fourthborn. So in the midst of the thousands of people, he'd be pointing to his brother Teacher, little doofus over here, to you, you, all of you who have, have younger siblings, you understand. You know, okay, till doofus over here, tell them, tell them to divide the inheritance with me fairly. See, most of the time, well, when, anytime that we experience injustice, the way we often go to God is we say, God, will you just please give me justice? And if we're being really honest, and I hope we can, in here, when there are gray matters in Scripture where the Bible's not abundantly clear about the right thing to do, we, we, kind of, we tend to favor the interpretation that tilts things in our advantage. Watch for that. So this guy comes to Jesus and wants Jesus to settle his, his dispute. But Jesus sees under the surface for this person. Because at least in this moment, here's here's a person and he's got a dispute with his brother over inheritance. If you were to ask him, what would you rather have? A good relationship with your brother or a bit more money? In that moment, he would have answered, money. Money. If I have to choose between a good relationship with my brother and money, I choose money. That tells us something about the story that he was believing. It's a story that, well, we're often very prone to believe as well, which is why we need to hear it, why these parables are so incredibly important, why they're so incredibly powerful. On some level, we believe most of us, or at least we, we hear it, or, we, or I would argue that we are so marinated in a culture that believes this, that we are prone to believe it. If I just had more money, my life would be better. 
If I just had more money, my life would have more meaning. If I just had a bit more money, I would be happier. That's why there's nothing more tragic than giving your life to the wrong story. So, Jesus tells a story about inheritance. He's so smart. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So, he thought, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger barns, and there I will, I will store my surplus grain. Now that tells us a few things about this rich guy. It tells us that he's not just a little bit rich, he's really rich. Because how many barns does he have? Multiple barns. Many barns. Now, presumably, a lot of Jesus' audience at this point would have been kind of working class people, which means that many of them, if not most of them, would be tenant farmers. So they're farming land, but they're farming land that they don't own. But this guy, this guy owns land. Apparently, quite a bit of land. (laughs) So I can just imagine the crowd, because we do this too. When there's a story where the rich guy is about to kind of get it, you sort of want to, like, Jesus, just go, just suck it to him, Jesus. Like, because we, I hate to admit, but I kind of like making fun of the Kardashians. Because there's something about, like, I just sort of, I just sort of want to make fun of really rich people. I sort of do. But there's also something sinister going on in my heart in that moment, too. Because if we can be honest, and I hope we can, there's a part in me that actually envies them. So we sort of want to stick it to those super rich people, just get them. But we also sort of want to be one. So Jesus gets to, the, gets to the heart of it. So here's a super rich guy. He's got a horrible problem. He's got too much stuff. Doesn't fit in all his garages. So he has to get bigger ones. And more of them. More storage sheds. More and bigger barns. And then... And then we hear the rest of the story. So, he, so I'll build bigger barns and then I'll store my excess grain and then I will say to myself, now we're back to the core story again. I'll say to myself, self, you have lots of grain. Making the grain rain. <laughs> Making it rain of the grain. Store it up for many years. I can't even eat all this grain. So, take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That tells us something about the story he believes. If I have more grain, my life will be better. If I have excess grain, my life will be better. Because the goal of my life is what? Eat, drink, and be merry. merry. The goal of my life is personal comfort. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry to, sorry to cough in the mic. I try to mute it. Anyways, so this gets me thinking. So one of the bigger sociological trends going on right now 
is that over the past few years, um, the largest, um, one of the, the largest groups in surveys uh, when it comes to religious affiliation. Now, Christians, if you combine Catholic and Protestant and any other Christian subgroups together, Christians still have a majority in our, in our country, but just barely, just barely. And, and, if you, uh, and if you factor in those who are actually practicing Christianity, like, like worshiping on a regular basis, like actively looking to follow the, um, the teachings of Jesus, it goes from a slight majority to uh, numbers less than 10%, by the way. Um, very, very small number. But the largest otherwise religious subcategory in, in the country now is what's called the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, like, oh, like but nuns. Like, like if you were to ask them, what religion are you? Their official answer would be, oh. What do you believe? Oh. That, none. There's, so, so they're not. They're not Catholic. They're not Protestant. They're not Buddhist. They're not Islamic. They're not Hindu. They're. 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 they're I don't know. They're not. They're, they're nuns. They have no religious affiliation. And so, one of the. I read this really fascinating article where one of the speculations around that is because if if you don't have any religious framework, whatever that religious system would be is where, what does provide? Because everybody believes something. And so the article was about the, the, the rise of paganism in America. Because, see, pagan, and actually, modern paganism has an awful lot in common with Greco-Roman paganism. One of the core values in the Greco-Roman Empire, the very, the very world that Jesus is speaking into, as he's giving this story, is this idea that the goal of life is, is personal wealth. Like, what's the purpose of life? I want to get rich. Why do you want to be rich? Duh, because then I'd be rich. Like, it's an end unto itself. And I dare say there's actually plenty of, of you know, people who would self-identify as Christians who would actually say the same thing. Like, what's the goal of life? The goal of life is to be wealthy. I want to have money. Why? Because if I have money, I, I, I have, ultimately what they're saying is because if I have money, I have meaning. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. You've probably heard those phrases. Maybe even be tempted by those phrases. It's the idea that money is in itself an inherent good. So the answer isn't so much like, oh, if I had lots of money, well, then I would, I would start a charity. I would send more people to Africa to build eye clinics. I would, I would give more generously to churches so the churches could thrive, so the neighborhoods could thrive, so the relationships and communities could thrive. It, it's, nor is it even the sense of if I had lots of money, I could, I could have a really, I could expand my business. I could create hundreds, maybe even thousands of jobs. You know, this idea that money is the means to a greater end. I'm going to create jobs. I'm going to, I'm going to benefit the community. I'm going to do things that help others. That's why I want to have money. No, the goal in paganism, at least, classical paganism, 
The idea is, I just want to have money because then I have money. Which of those values is the guy in the story exemplifying? Then I will say to myself, you have lots of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Interestingly, when they do all like the like longevity studies, if you've read any articles, we were listening to a podcast about this a couple weeks ago, it's actually our comfort that shortens our life. It's that the more we do actually take it easy, in general, that's what, that's what compromises our own health. Not the only factor, obviously, but to take life easy is actually pretty bad for us. So here's this guy. He's got lots of money. His, his, his harvest is doing excellent. And he's going to make more room because he's going to have more money. And he thinks he's doing great. I mean, he, he's the poster child for the, for the American dream. And God says to him, you, what's the word? Say it louder. Cool. That's the last thing you want to hear God say to you. In other words, you could have done something different. You could have known better. In fact, you had the opportunity to make different choices. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who's going to get all that you've prepared for yourself? Comes right back to this inheritance thing. It, it cycles right back to the inheritance story. Who's going to get your stuff? And what's your real legacy going to be? Now, there, there's nothing wrong with, with having, leaving a legacy for your, for your kids. Though I'm reminded that at least among some of the super wealthy, if you read some of the trends, many of them, at least ones that seem to start to understand, you know, the ones that are also launching really big foundations and op opting to, to, get, to get rid themselves of most of their money before their death, there's a few, there's a few that are doing that have chosen to, to not give their kids super big inheritance, inheritances because they know it would ruin them. Who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? What's your legacy going to be? What, what are people going to inherit, inherit from you? Now, I do hope, like I said, I do hope you leave your kids something. Can I see your eyes? But if that's all you leave them, it's money? Really? Is that all? The reason we need stories like this is Jesus just totally reframes the, the, our, our conventional, our, our, our secular, I dare say our American 
view of wealth. This idea that, that you can be materially prosperous and yet spiritually poor. And in the same way, there's those who may not have a material abundance. You might be just getting by, but in fact are overwhelmingly wealthy. Apparently money isn't all it's cracked up to be. It can certainly do some good things. And we certainly feel, the, feel a degree of suffering when we lack the basics. There's no question about that. But more of it does not necessarily equal more meaning. So what do you want your life to really be about? What's really worth living for? I I saw a quote this week by by the great philosopher Jim Carrey that I thought was really interesting. (laughs) He, He said this, I hope everyone could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know it's not the answer. Isn't that a good quote? That's a good quote. That's somebody that I'm assuming, and this is not me giving a full-on endorsement of his life or his actions, but I'm assuming that's someone who's been doing some thinking. So for you, What do you want your life to really be about? What do you want to really have be your legacy? What's most important to you? What does success look like for you? Because there's nothing more tragic than giving our lives to the wrong story. That's why Jesus tells us better stories. (laughs) Helps us to see reality in brand new ways. Helps us see what's already going on around us more clearly. So what really lasts? What really matters? What do you want to live for? Repent and believe, Jesus said. In other words, change how you're living, change how you're seeing things, and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. That God is more active in the world now than we we might otherwise be able to see. And one day, one day, his rule and reign is going to be plainly apparent. To everyone. One day we're going to, these misguided notions that money on its own creates meaning are going to be eradicated. So for you, what do you want to live for? Or maybe even, maybe even a better way to ask this question is who do you want to live for? We close. I, I, well, one, I, I, I hope that we'll, uh, I hope that you'll dive into these stories with me over the next six weeks. I hope you can make a like a six-week habit of coming to church, um, so we can we can we can learn better stories 
so we can see the world in better ways. I hope, I hope that you really will, if you're not yet in a group of some sort, I hope you'll think about finding a group of some sort because here's the thing. We, all of us are swimming in a, in a world where we're be, getting told all these other stories about what matters in life and what we're supposed to live for, which is why we need people around us to help us see things more clearly, to get grounded. Because we all feel it. We're marinating in this stuff and it's intoxicating. And I mean that in the fullest sense. Like, it's, it's, it's a message around us that makes it difficult for us to see the world clearly. But I know, I know that if you still your heart, I know if you've ever had some of the privileges like I've even had in the last week of sitting next to someone who it's, who it's in their final days of life and you say, what was your life all about? I know that if, when you still your heart and think about what really matters, I know you're going to come up with a different answer than, gosh, I just wish I'd made more $10,000 more. I know it's a different answer. But we forget, which is why we need one another, why we need a posse, why we need people around us that we can talk to about our faith so we don't waste our lives pursuing the wrong story. There is nothing more tragic. We can help each other out. And we can start the journey with, I'm gonna, we, there's a, a brief prayer I just want to put up on the screen. My hunch is this is something that to a certain degree, whether you have been walking with the Lord for a long time or you're just starting to investigate your faith. My hunch is that when you really start to think about what makes life meaningful, going to come down to a phrase a little bit like this. Lord, I want to live for you. Help me to see the world through your eyes. Thank you for the resources you've given me. Lord, help me to see them through your eyes. I want to invest my thing, myself and my stuff in things that really last and matter. And you, Lord, are eternal. And you, Lord, are supreme. You're better than the best investment account. So give me wisdom with what to do with what you've entrusted to me here on earth. Lord, I want to live for you.